1 Samuel 16. Um, David in Saul's service. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes to you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and, and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then um, relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. And we're going to do a, a bit from Matthew as well. So, Matthew 13. The parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still yet another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Morning, everyone. When I was uh, looking through the notes that Chris had sent me through for this autumn term and I saw that I had this passage, uh, I realised that Chris had put the uh, sermon series together because I think this is the hardest passage in the whole of 1 Samuel. Um, so I think he slid that one off to me. You can deal with that one, Adam. Um, and so I think we probably need to pray for the Lord's help. Um, this is his word. It's food for our souls. Um, it's just heavy bread this morning. And so we're going to need his help to digest it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is living food for our souls. In a world that is giving us fake bread, we thank you that every time we open your word, it is living, it's active, and it transforms us from the inside. We pray that you do that this morning through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, how many of you can remember the uh, classic milk advert 
where uh, there's two boys, they're from Liverpool, and they're talking about if one of the boys doesn't drink milk, he won't be able to play for Liverpool, he'll, he'll have to play for who? Exactly. Okay, this is basically what 1 Samuel until this point has all been about. The writer of 1 Samuel has been making massive comparisons between different people's lives. He's first of all been comparing Hannah. Do you remember right back at the beginning of 1 Samuel? He's been comparing Hannah's faithfulness to God compared to Eli's the priest's blindness. He then compares Samuel, the new emerging priest, with, uh, um, with Eli, who's the negligent priest. He then compares Samuel's faithfulness in compared to Saul's fear-driven unfaithfulness. Then Jonathan en- enters the picture, and Jonathan, although he's not the king, essentially is acting like the king, and Saul, who is the king, is acting as a negligent king, again and again, all through the opening 15 chapters, we get this compare and contrast. Liverpool versus Accrington Stanley. Exactly. And yet here in this chapter, something completely different is happening. No longer are we getting comparisons. What we're actually seeing is the crux or the pivot of this whole book. Basically, what I mean by that is, If you kind of open 1 Samuel at 1 Samuel 16 and look backwards, and then you look forwards, the picture is completely different in the book. This is the centerpiece of 1 Samuel on which everything changes. Now, I want to get myself in really hot water. I want to try and lose as many friends as I can in about 30 seconds, okay? What I think 1 Samuel 16 is really like is 2011 and 2012 here in Manchester. So let's just think about this for a moment. 2011, looking backwards, there's just one colour if you want to define the top team in the country. Man United. 2011, who wins the FA Cup? No, they don't. Man City win the, the, the FA Cup. Who wins the Premiership in 2012? City with a crushing 6-1 defeat of Man United. This was a turning point in the city. When you look backwards, it's always red. When you look forward, well, the picture's a little bit different. This is 1 Samuel 16. It's a turning point in the book. It's a turning point because what's actually happening is there tra- there's a transfer, transfer of power between two kings that is taking place. Now, if you're sat there thinking, Adam, are we going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about the transfer of power in some kind of technical terms? The answer is no. What I'm hoping to do over the next 30 minutes is to show you how this transfer of power between two kings a few thousand years ago has massive implications for our lives today. You see, in many ways, you and I are living in the second half of 1 Samuel 16 right now. If you're a follower of Jesus today, 
a transfer of power has happened in your life. A new kingdom has been established in your life. This transfer of power of 1 Samuel 16 has been enacted in your life. And I want to use this chapter to show what is happening in your life as an individual and in the church today. How does that sound? Sound okay? Let's spend a little bit more time thinking about this transfer of power. Turn back with me to verse 13. I think it's really intriguing to try and understand what is this transfer of power all about? Was it just some kind of political moment that took place in the land of Israel? Was it some kind of tradition that was taking place? No, something really quite surprising took place. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the presence of his brothers. I mean, just at square brackets there, that must have been an awkward moment, mustn't it, for David and for his brothers. This was all out of kilter. It should have been the oldest, but suddenly the youngest is being anointed. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Square brackets... Samuel had done his job. Pause. Think about that. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Can you see what's going on here? This transfer of power between David, Saul and David is not some political shuffling that is going on. What is happening here is the Spirit of the Lord, that is the Holy Spirit, God himself, is coming upon David so that he might enact godly leadership in the nation. And this is a really common thing in the Old Testament. You can see it again and again. If you just want to flick your Bible back to Judges, you can sit in the life of Othniel, you can sit in the life of Gideon, you can sit in the life of Samson, that at the start of their kind of judge's ministry, the spirit comes upon them and empowers them to be judges over the people of God. When the spirit of the Lord came upon David, a fundamental shift took place in his life. This was a God-initiated, God-ordained, God-crafted, God-elected transfer of power between Saul and David. That's what was going on between verses 13 and verse 14. However, we then have this puzzling phrase in verse 14 that the spirit had departed from Saul. So what's going on here? I think what's going on here is that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David, and this new emerging kingdom of David is pressing up and through the kingdom of Saul. And as we've already seen in chapter 15, this kingdom of Saul has been fundamentally changed by God himself. We're told in chapter 15, verse 28, that basically the kingdom of God has been torn out of Saul. 
Do you remember that passage where his clothes rip and like Samuel turns to him and says, like my clothes have been ripped, so the kingdom is being torn from you. So what is Saul presiding over now? What is he presiding over? He's presiding over a shell kingdom. He's presiding over a kingdom of Saul, not the kingdom of the Lord. That's what's happening here. And friends, this is really, really helpful for you and I. And I just want to put a pin in this for now because we'll come back to this later. What we're learning through this passage is vital for ministry in the 21st century. It's this, titles, institutional power, historical power bases, money, influence, prestige are the heartless shell of the kingdoms of Saul. And the kingdom of David, the kingdom of the Lord, looks very different. And we're going to see what that looks like. What that means for you and I is when we're looking at how can we be followers of Christ in this world, if we start leaning towards the power bases of this world, we're leaning towards the power bases of Saul, the shell-like kingdom, and not the kingdom of Saul, which is the kingdom that has been empowered by the Lord. Back to this transfer of power. Notice how this transfer of power is directly linked to the Spirit of God coming upon David. Nothing else is mentioned other than that Samuel pours a whole bunch of oil on his head. And with that, that's a sign that the Spirit of the Lord has now come upon him. And this is the moment where there is a transfer of power taking place. Saul no longer is the legitimate king. David is now really the legitimate king who is pushing through this shell-like kingdom, which is Saul. The writer of 1 Samuel is juxtaposing these two pictures of the true king being empowered by the Spirit, and the false king now having the Spirit departed. That's the picture that we're getting painted. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does this teach us? What does this teach us? And when we turn through the pages of the Bible, what we see again and again is that God works through his people as he empowers his people. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus, when he was baptized in Luke 3, what do we learn about Jesus' baptism? What's the kind of defining characteristic of his baptism? It wasn't actually that he got wet. What's the defining characteristic? The Spirit descends upon him. And then Jesus writes the commentary of what was taking place in that moment. In the very next chapter, in chapter 4, he says... The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, open square brackets. This is the kingdom mandate that is going to be outworked through me. This is what it's going to look like. The Spirit comes. This is how it's going to be outworked. A new era was unfolding and it was marked by the power and the enabling of the Spirit of God upon Jesus. So now we skip forward a few more pages and we turn to another key moment when the church is birthed. 
And what happens when the church is birthed? Exactly the same thing. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church so that the church might be this enabled people and the kingdom of our God might be enacted through his people. Again and again, through the Bible, the Spirit comes so that the kingdom might advance. So what marks out the kingdom of our God in Scripture? That's a complicated question to answer, but one of the answers is this. The Spirit of the Lord empowers his people that we might be witnesses for him. That's one of the marks of the kingdom of God in Scripture. And friends... This is a really wonderful, beautiful reminder for you and I if you're a follower of Jesus today. What do I mean by that? I mean there has been a transfer of power in your life. Once you were dead in your sins. Now you're alive in Christ. Once you were blind to who Jesus is, now your eyes have been opened that you might see him for who he really is. Once your hearts were dead towards the things that God loves, now your heart has been turned into a heart of flesh so you might love the things that God has loved. This is the work of the kingdom in your life. A transfer of power has happened. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A transfer of power, a new kingdom has come into your life. This is wonderful news, isn't it? This is wonderful news. And so, friends, when you're thinking about what does it mean for me in the 21st century living in Reddish or in the Heatons to be a follower of Jesus, one of the answers you can say is this. A fundamental, eternal transfer of power has taken place in my life. I have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life eternally. Eternally. This is what's going on. But I suspect, and this is my second point, I suspect that there are many people here who've not been listening to the last few minutes because you've been stuck at verse 14. And so I want us to now grapple with verse 14. And I want us to look at this tormenting spirit and the sovereignty of God. Uh, And friends, we're going to dive into some deep water for a few minutes, it's impossible not to dive into some deep water because the writer of 1 Samuel in verse 14, 15, 16 and 23 link this tormenting spirit coming from dot, 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 the Lord. That should be a troubling verse for us. It should make us at least scratch our heads and go, what on earth is going on here? What do we make of this? Are we saying that God sends evil, tormenting spirits upon people? Are we really saying that? That's the question that these verses ask us. The evil, or as the word can just as wisely be translated, injurious or bad spirit, gives us the opportunity as Christians to reflect upon the world that we live in. To see the evil around us, 
and to stop and to think about the world that we live in and what is God's relationship to the pain and the suffering and the evil that there is around us and to start to try and map that out and say, how does all of this fit together? This is not the first time that people in, who have called themselves Christians have been asking themselves this question. If you were to go back to 300 AD, there was a guy, his name is Augustine, and Augustine was grappling with this. He was looking at the terror in the world and the mess of the world that he was in, and he was saying, where does evil come from? And famously, his response was, evil is the absence of good. Now, I think there's some challenges to his view, but I think it's really helpful for us today to hold that in your mind because what happens here in this passage, all of the tormenting that take place in Saul's life takes place after the spirit departs. A vacuum has been formed in David's life, in Saul's life. The spirit departs. And suddenly there is this tormenting, this injury that is taking place to Saul. And so I think Augustine has something to help us with here. That when there is the absence of good, the good Holy Spirit, suddenly the trouble starts to impinge upon his life. Friends, what does trouble look like? In our lives. You see, this spirit is described as a spirit who brings torment or trouble. What does trouble look like? I think there's a whole array of ways that we can answer this question, but I want to answer this in a way that I'm suspecting many of you won't anticipate. Maybe we can turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is one of the classic passages that helps us understand what it means to live in this world trapped by sin. And Paul writes this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, which is the verse I want you to underline. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. So here we have one in 1 Samuel... We have God essentially giving Saul over to the thing that he longed for, which was to be an autonomous king, not under the kingship of the Lord. And God did that. And he tore the true kingdom from him and said, if that's the way you want to live, then over to you. And with that came all of this troubling. And then here in, one, in Romans 1.8 we actually see the same process at work amongst this people. But the difference is really startling. 
What does trouble in, one, in Romans 1.8 look like? What does it look like? It looks like blessing. That's what it looks like. God's giving them over to the desires of their hearts. I long that my life will be shaped around owning the ultimate home, the designer home in Reddish, if there is such a thing. <laughs> and so I'm going to give my whole life to owning the designer home in Reddish. Romans 1.8 says, judgment, trouble looks like being given over to that. So suddenly... My life is filled up with this designer home in Reddish, and I'm living this amazing dream. Romans 1 says, that's judgment. When anything fulfills the central place of God in our lives, it's trouble, it's judgment. When anything takes the central place in our lives, whether it looks like 1 Samuel 16, which is clearly a trouble that other people could observe because his attendants are going, something weird is happening to Saul. Or it's Romans 1 type of trouble where it looks like blessing. When God is not central in our lives, it's trouble. Why? Because God wired us, made us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind. And when anything fills that place... We are walking down a road that is called trouble. We're walking down a road that is called judgment. Anytime anything enters that central place in our lives, that's where it leads to. It leads to trouble. And so one of the wonderful things that this passage does for those of you who are followers of Jesus, it gives you the opportunity to, to stop this morning and ask yourself the question, is your heart solely desiring after God? Is it? Or has other things crept in, like Saul, like Romans 1? Have other things started to fill up that place in your life so that you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Maybe he's just further down the pecking order. The second thing this verse does for us, verse 14, is it leads us to consider the sovereignty of God in all things. Because these verses do speak about this troubling spirit coming from the Lord. And so we now need to try and work out what does that mean? Like, are we really saying that the good God of the universe is taking some evil act or evil malevolent spirit and is pressing it into Saul's life? Is that what we're saying? And this is where we need to just think about the distance between us and the people of Saul and David's day. You see, in our day, we want to ask what the primary cause is. So who caused the First World War? We want to ask those kind of questions, don't we? Who caused the Great Depression? We want to be able to nail it down to one issue. But for the people of Saul and David's day, they were very comfortable in almost like ignoring secondary causes like war, evil kings, 
And as long as they could see it sitting under the sovereign hand of the Lord, they were willing to say, well, that's from the Lord. They were willing to do that. So it's like they're ignoring all these secondary causes. Something might have been caused by a terrible war. And they were able to say, but it's under the sovereign purposes of God. And they kind of ignore the war. And for us, in our modern worlds, we're like, I want to talk about the war. Who started the war? And they're going, but it's under the sovereign plans of the Lord. And we need to hold this in mind when we think about this passage. And this is the consistent witness of the Bible. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, I wish somebody would call their child Nebuchadnezzar, don't you? What a great name. Think about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They came in and they took the people of Israel into exile. So who did that? Was it the Lord? Or was it Nebuchadnezzar? What about the wonderful story of Joseph and his brother's evil intent to sell him to the Ishmaelites, who then sold him to the Egyptians? Like, what's going on there? Was that the evil intent of his brothers? Or was it the Lord? This is what we see again and again in Scripture, and it leads us to consider what does it mean when we use the words the sovereign purposes of the Lord in all things? Maybe we can move to my next slide. Oh, maybe a few slides. Yeah, here we go. You see, I think many people in this world view the world that we live in just like this picture. This is yin yang. It's a, a Chinese philosophy which basically says that evil and good balance each other out. This is how they view the world. And so there may be some evil things that are kind of coming up, but then there'll be some goodness. And so everything is equaled out, both good and evil. Friends, that is not the view of Scripture. The view of Scripture is that all things sit under the sovereign plans of our God, and that should make your hearts happy. It should make your hearts glad. Job, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his pain, his grief, his loss, he was able to say, I know that you can do all things speaking of the Lord and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he was right. D.A. Carson, speaking about the sovereign plans of the Lord, says this, to put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that no evil ever takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty, yet evil is not morally chargeable to him. It's always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. So, we see the evil intent of Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph as a slave to the Ishmaelites. But it's also the sovereign plans of the Lord being outworked in his life. To rescue a people, to save a people through Joseph. We see the evil power grabbing um, desires of Nebuchadnezzar to steal a nation, to exile a nation and pull them into his nation. Being used by the Lord to um, enact judgment upon the people of God as he prophesied through the prophets. We see Herod's fear-stricken desire to hold on to power 
pushing Jesus out of Bethlehem into Egypt and then through Egypt to come back into Nazareth. We see Judas' love of money leading to the betrayal and then the execution of Jesus. Yet in that, the sovereign and wonderful love and grace and mercy of God being demonstrated to the world. And in 1 Samuel 16, Saul's pervasive rejection of God, leading to a life of evil, now being tormented, leading to the newly appointed king, King David, being brought into his house so that the new king would emerge in in and through the old kingdom. And all of this taking place in the sovereign plans of our God. Friends, if we rightly understand the sovereignty of God, this is what it should do in our hearts. We should be able to look around in a world like ours where there are wars and conflict and pain and distress and it should be able to bring a settledness in our hearts that we don't understand everything that is going on but this world is not out of control. It is in the sovereign plans of our God. It should bring a settledness, a peace to our hearts. Why can I say that? I can say that because when we look to the cross, where Christians love to look at the cross and they sing amazing grace, actually what Christians should be singing when they sing that song is amazing sovereignty. Because there we see the evil intent of men and women like you and I crushing the Lamb of God. And through that, the sovereign purposes of God being outworked to save men and women like us. That song is really about the sovereignty of God. Amazing sovereignty. And if we can see that in the cross, the worst moment in history and the best moment in history, we can then look into our world where we see disturbing things and think, well, if it could happen at the cross, then at least we can understand God is still sovereign today. Amen. So my question, when you see verse 14 and you see verse 15 and you see verse 16 and verse 23, my question to you is this. Can you sing amazing sovereignty? Can you sing that? knowing that God is in control of all things, even the complicated verses like this where we don't fully grasp what is going on. Are you able to step back and say, I can see God is at work and I trust in his sovereign power. In fact, I glory in his sovereign power. Finally, the yeast-like kingdom. If Hollywood had been writing chapter 16 it wouldn't have gone like this what would Hollywood have done with chapter 16 this is what would have happened Samuel would have come anointed David some big seismic battle between David and Saul would have taken place there would have been music by Zinnemann playing in the background and suddenly David would have prevailed against Saul right but that's not what happens This is a really quite dull chapter in a way. What happens is 
Samuel pours the oil on David's head. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him and everyone goes back to normal. I mean, that's what happens. Everything goes back to normal. Samuel wanders off. David goes back to being a shepherd. But in the sovereign plans of God, two kingdoms are now starting to collide. But they're colliding in a yeast-like way. Notice what happens. The tormenting spirit comes upon David. His attendants are going, something is really up with the king. We've got to sort this out. And so they try and figure out a plan. How can we kind of soothe the king when he's in this distressed place? I know. Let's get a great musician who can come in and play some wonderful music to soothe his heart. Who might that be? Ah, David. You know the guy? And so they call David in. And so suddenly David is brought into the kingdom of Saul but as a harp player. Not as the king, as a harp player, as a lyre player. And so this is what's going on. And it's a wonderful picture of the kingdom of God being like yeast coming into the dough of a shell-like kingdom. You know, we want trumpets being played. We want big displays that something is changing and David comes in and plays a lyre now and again. But he's in the kingdom and he's bringing change. In fact, what's actually happening is the old kingdom of Saul is now relying upon the new kingdom of David for spiritual solace. That's what's taking place here. The old kingdom of Saul actually doesn't have an answer to what's going on in his life. He needs to rely upon David. And unbeknown to him, David is the new king. And so he's now relying upon the new kingdom that is emerging in the midst. Friends, this is an illustration for you and I of the danger of relying upon outward forms of power in our world. Saul had them all. He was the king. He had the title. He had the attendance. He had the political power. He had the wealth. He had the honor. But the true king, like yeast, was starting to bring change from the inside. And isn't that a picture of Jesus? Isn't that a picture of how Jesus came? Jesus came into Bethlehem. I mean, again, let me upset a few people. Bethlehem is as much Accrington Stanley as anywhere. It's a backward place. Jesus came into a backward place. He came in obscurity. People again and again wanted him to take up political power and military power. And Jesus cut a different groove. Jesus was not going down that road because his kingdom was like, well, like yeast. He wanted to change people from the inside out. He wanted to do the heart work of taking spiritually dead people and turning them into eternally alive people. That was his work. He wanted the kingdom to come into people's hearts, people that were God-haters to become God-lovers. 
As he wasn't interested in the political power of his day. He was interested in the transformation, the yeast-like transformation of people. And notice the type of people that were attracted to Jesus. Prostitutes, tax collectors, collaborators, those deemed unclean by society. They were having their lives changed by those that had political power. They were still holding on to the old way of life. Jesus' radical grace was about changing people from the inside like yeast. That's the way he works. And friends, I think this has some really serious implications for you and I and for us as a church family. I know that one of the questions that many people are asking is, what are we going to do? What's the way forward for us as a church? Let me give you the answer. We've been called to be yeast-like in Reddish, the Heatons, Stockport, and southeast Manchester. Gospel ministry is not shiny. Gospel ministry is not flash. Gospel ministry doesn't have political power. But it is yeast-like. It's an active agent to bring change in our society. Friends, that's what we've been called to. Amen? To see the communities that we are part of changed, not on the outside, like an outer religious crust, but to have their hearts changed. For men and women who have no interest in Christianity to suddenly say, I love Jesus, and I'm not even sure why I'm saying this. That's the gospel work that we've been called to, where people's lives are changed from the inside out. And so, friends, as we consider the future together, can I encourage us to hold on to this really unimpressive, unspectacular picture of what it means to be the church? We've been called to be like Christ, to be yeast-like in reddish to be yeast-like in the Heatons, to be yeast-like in Stockport, yeast-like where you live. Because that's the way that Christ works from the inside out, bringing change, just like David in the shell-like kingdom of Saul. Let me say it one more time, and then we're going to pray. As I've been drinking cups of tea with many people, one of the consistent questions I get asked is, Adam, what's the vision? And I kind of feel a bit of a pressure with that, as if I've got to come up with something spectacular. And then I look at Christ, and I look at his ministry amongst people, and it's very, very, very ordinary. Like the gospel isn't ordinary, but the ministry is. The gospel is the power of God, not our flashy vision. The gospel is what changes people's lives. 
That's what changes people's lives. That's the yeast that needs to be sown again and again into Reddish and the Heatons. That's what we've been called to. How we figure that out is also secondary to that. Yeah? Let me, let me touch on another, like, hand grenade this morning. Just as, and then we really are going to pray. Numbers of people have been asking me questions about, like, Reddish and Heaton and the Green Lane site. Friends, that's tools for mission. And the mission looks like yeast-like gospel work. Day in, day out. Pouring our lives out in an unspectacular way. But in that, the gospel changing people's hearts again and again. Friends, if we give ourselves to that, figuring out reddish green lane and all of those complexities will get so much easier. If we make the primary goal, we're going to be about the gospel. If we make that the goal, we're going to be a yeast-like community that does that. The rest will get figured out. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and we pray? (coughs) Father, thank you for this wonderful passage that leads us out of our comfort zone to see the sovereignty of God in all things. It helps us to look at the world and see war and distress not having the last word, to see human displacement in our world and that not to have the last word, but to see that, Lord, sitting over and above all of these things are the sovereign purposes of God, and we can't figure that out. But we trust and lean into your sovereignty. We find rest in the fact that, Lord, you hold all things together. And Lord, we then see this wonderful picture of Saul bringing David into the camp. And through that, bringing change, yeast-like change. And we want to pray for us as a church that we would be yeast-like gospel people in Reddish, the Heatons, Stockport, Southeast Manchester, and maybe even tipping over into other places. We pray for that, Lord. We want to ask, forgive us, Lord, when we've leaned into the power structures of this world. We want to be people that lean into the power and the treasure of the gospel that is wrapped up in our clay-like ordinariness. We want to live as yeast, a church community made up of yeast. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.